Touch them all, Joe! Welcome to the Backstage Project Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Silver. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Don Young, a documentary producer, storyteller, and content innovator. I hope you enjoy. Don, you and I worked together for almost five years, 2008 to 2012, but it really wasn't until the last few years when we've had the chance to connect on some varying topics that we were able to dig deep into really what each of our crafts are and learn more about one another. Obviously, that's storytelling for you. And, and for me, it's more focused on digital and the economy of digital. Even still, I wasn't fully aware of your career profile, kind of dating back to before our time together working on the Olympics. Honestly, until I started preparing for our chat today, it only then became clear to me everything that you've meant to Canadian television and that industry. Um, and that's really what we'll end up talking about today, just contextualizing the value that you've brought to your trade and your craft. And so I want to get to the heart of that story uh, as, we, as we speak today, the part about what really drives you to push boundaries, you know, take on projects and assignments that may really seem impossible to people who are even you know, leaders in your field. So with that, Don, I wanted to welcome you to the Backstage Project podcast. Good. Well, thank you. I'm very glad to be here. And uh, yeah, we've certainly got a lot, a lot of ground to uh, cover. I mean, we've both done many interesting things in our career and reasonably successful things as well. And uh, so, yeah, I kind of look forward to sharing some of the, you know, pulling the curtain back a bit. Uh, you know, people love to look behind the curtain and see what goes on. So, yeah, I'm happy to kind of share some of these stories. Okay, great. Well, listen, to, to get us started, we'll consider kind of a warm-up question. Let's go back. Let's go back to, to where the Don that, that I know kind of first emerged. That guy who thinks fast on his feet, is ready with solutions, you know, always the glass half full and always enthusiastic. Tell us about that, Don. Well, yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, it's a generous way to start this off. And I have to be honest, I, I do struggle with the glass half full image because it's a tough business, you know, and uh, it's, it's hard to get in. It's really hard to get in. You know, you've got to be resilient and you've got to uh, uh, kind of like knock on a lot of doors uh, and you've also got to be lucky. Right, you, you, and we can talk about that. Uh, but you got to show initiative. You got to be lucky, and you, and you got to have that kind of stick toativeness to get that your proverbial foot in the door. And uh, I, you know, when you and I were working at the Olympics, I used to go and uh, talk to uh, journalism classes at uh, Ryerson and Conestoga and uh, Centennial and Sate and Nate and uh, Algonquin in Ottawa. And I had this speech. And I would always kind of say, listen, here's honestly what I think. This is the best time ever to be trying to get into this business. Uh, but guys, remember, it is a business. And even though we don't think of it as show business, it is. And it's not show fun, let's make a documentary with your buddy, or it's not show working with your girlfriend or your boyfriend to try and, you know, create something. It's a business. So, you know, you young Canadians, you know, who are listening to this speech, 
as you kind of look to build your career, you've got to be really, really clear in your own inner dialogue, in your own thinking on a number of things. Why do I want to do this? I mean, it's easy to say, but it's really hard. You know, it's this kind of whole world of mindfulness, but applying it to a professional environment. So why do I want to get into this business? Is it to make money? Is it to become famous? Is it to pick up girls? You know, is, is it to hang out with movie stars and athletes? Like, or, or, you know, do I feel a sense of social injustice and I want to change the world? Like, what is it? Because if you want to get into this business to make money, then think again, because you can wait, make way more money by becoming a dentist. I mean, you want to make money, become a dentist, right? Become an orthodontist. You know, you'll make half a million dollars a year if you're smart. If, you know, you want to change the world through uh, being a social justice warrior, then get involved in the political process. You know, because this is, you know, you, you're not going to change the world much by becoming a TV producer. Um, you know, if you want to meet girls, well, you know, that's maybe not bad because this is a pretty good business to kind of socialize, but it's also uh, an unhealthy business to have a deep, meaningful uh, relationship with somebody. Hence the high divorce rate in film and television and media. So, you know, all you kids listening to this, be, first of all, be really, really clear on what it is you want to do and why you want to get into this business. So that's kind of how I would start my speech. And, you know, all the guys you kind of would be looking down and uh, because they clearly hadn't thought any of this stuff. And the, and the young women in the class would always be engaging with me because most of them have thought this through. Um, so then I would go on to say, um, uh, once, you know, once you're clear with that, then the second thing you really have to, to come to terms with is this is a business. And um, it's not really, a, I, I don't like to call what we do a profession because you know, professions have structures around them and they have, uh, they have rules of conduct and kind of codes of how you conduct yourself. So um, we're not really a profession. Uh, we're more of a craft. You know, I, I think of myself more as a carpenter or, you know, like somebody who actually, or a sculptor, you know, somebody who makes something out of nothing. But that's fine, you know, to make something out of nothing. But you also have to live and you have to eat well and, you know, have a house and all that sort of stuff. So unless you're incredibly fortunate and actually marry a dentist who has a good cash flow, then you have to apply a, a business discipline to what it is we do. And that means knowing where the money is. And we, you know, we can get into this later in the podcast. But anyway, so just to kind of circle back to your question. So, um, you know, I, I really struggle with this, keeping the glass half full, because it's really a hard business, a hard craft to make a life in. One level, it's seductive, and it seems like fun, quote unquote, but that's an immature way to come into this business. And that speaks to why there's so many bankruptcies, so many receiverships, so many divorces from mom and pop shops, because they haven't 
have that initial discipline in their own thinking as to why they embark on this career. Well, thanks yeah. for that. I, we're going we're gonna to begin to move on to something that's a little more filled with hope and joy. But, but I think what you're saying and the message, I mean, this is your craft. This is your trade. I've had the opportunity in my career to be in several industries. And so I have other examples that are very much parallel to what you describe. In, in many cases, you know, what you're describing is very similar to what we were talking with, like, uh, you know, Kevin, Kevin Newman about not, not too long ago on the podcast, which is, you know, this concept of being a startup. And, and, I, and I think that what you're describing in many ways, you know, you think about uh, the, the bright eyes, right? The, uh, where, where people are, they're artists. They're, in some cases, they're engineers when you look at technology. But these are people that are filled with hope and, and drive and they want to achieve. And they don't. They didn't go to you know business school like I did, so they're not always conditioned to you know what is your SWAT or what is your objective and mission and all of these things. Mm-hmm. Which and I know having worked with many people in on your side, you know, that's not exactly how you guys were brought up. You were brought up a little different, a little more you know machismo <laughs> and flair and confidence, um, and not always looking for fault, but looking for opportunity. So very interesting to hear you you know, kind of package up what, what, what is, you know, decades and decades of experience. And I know that you've had the opportunity to be on both sides, you know, of this industry, very much flush with cash. And then also, you know, reinventing yourself to be relevant as the world changes. We're going to get into a lot of that today. Right. So I'm super excited of course, you know, to do that. I, I, had, I had no sense of this back in the late 70s when I was, you know, a kind of a hungry graduate student, you know, and wasn't quite sure if I was going to go to law school or was I going to go to do an MBA. Uh, I, I, I come from Calgary and I was at U of A in Edmonton. And I, you know, I used to write for the Gateway, the university newspaper. And I would write um, kind of like sarcastic, bitchy little columns that I would essentially rip off from uh, the National Lampoon because I was a big National Lampoon fan. So I'd read Mad Magazine and National Lampoon, and I'd see how they'd really sort of taken a twist on things and on American politics most of the time. So I would take that little twist and I would apply it to university politics or, you know, provincial politics. Because Alberta at the time, you know, in the late 70s, it was Peter Lougheed and the oil sands were just starting and indigenous rights issues were coming up. And the U of A in Edmonton was this really kind of cool place uh, at the time. And there was a lot to write about. So, you know, so I, I was doing that and, uh, I used to get a real kick out of watching other people. So so just, just to give you a little bit of context, so the Gateway would come out on Tuesdays and Fridays. That, that was the name of the student newspaper, the Gateway. It'd come out on Tuesdays and Fridays. And the guys would dump like a huge pile of Gateways uh, around the different coffee spots on campus. So, and then people would go buy a cup of coffee, you know, pick one up and sit and read it. So I would go and sit and watch people reading my articles. And I was always on the, you know, you'd have the front page and then you turn, you'd have page two and page three. I was always on page three. So I could see when folks had turned the front page and were looking over at page three. And then I would watch them as as they read what I wrote. 
And, you know, I got a real kick out of that. And, uh, you know, it speaks to my, my ego and, you know, and kind of who I was at that time. But uh, I thought, you know what, this is really cool. You know, I've got people are getting pissed off or they're agreeing with me or stuff like that. And then I go to parties and then, just, you know, just to circle back to the this is a great business to meet girls. I'd go to parties and uh, I'd say, oh, like, so did you see my piece in the gateway this week? And it was always a great conversation starter, you know, to meet meet folks. So. So, uh, yeah, so I, I did that. I was, you know, I was either going to be you, you know, go do an MBA or, you know, go to law school. I was going to go out to UBC. And then uh, I was I was doing an MA. And uh, so I, uh, you know, I met a guy who had read my stuff in the gateway and uh, he knew somebody who worked at the CBC. And he said to me, oh, you should, you know, go to the CBC and you should pitch them on a couple of story ideas because CBC radio at the time hired freelance commentators. They would pay us 60 bucks for a column and you'd go in and you, you know, read a three minute column. So, you know, the first thing I pitched were, you know, university life and skiing and all the things I knew. And I did a couple of them. Then they called me like, I, I wasn't that bad. I wasn't very good, but I wasn't that bad. And I was good enough that the CBC actually called me and they said, listen, we have a, somebody's called into the newsroom and said there was a UFO out at the campsite, you know, just outside of Edmonton. You want to like take a tape recorder and just go out and get some clips out of people, you know what? So I drove out and I'm wandering around, uh, around Lac St. Anne, about 50 kilometers west of Edmonton. And so I meet this crazy old guy and he gives me like a great interview. And then right towards the end of the interview, he says to me, oh, and by the way, did you know that there was a Bigfoot here on the campsite the other day as well? Maybe the, and the clip we used was, it was him saying, maybe the Bigfoot came from the UFO. And not being a complete dimwit, I went ding, 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 ding. Now here's an opportunity. Here's a storyline that I can make a few bucks from. So I went back and I, you know, I did my piece and we, you know, we structured the piece, Bigfoot emerges from UFO uh, on Edmonton, you know, Alberta campsite. So we did the story and it was great. And then about a month later, I get a call from the National Enquirer in Florida from the editorial desk down there. And they said, hey, are you the guy who did that UFO Bigfoot story? And I said, sure. They said, we'll pay you $150 if you will write it up and send it down to us. So I thought, what the heck, you know? And so even before I got into business, I had this byline in the National Enquirer. And, uh, you know, here we are like 40 years later. Well, you so, could have had a completely different career. I could have, but you know what? Opportunity, having a little bit of chutzpah and that kind of spark of, and it wasn't driven by money. It was driven by, now here's a story. You know, here's something that people are really going to be interested in listening to. I mean, who's not going to listen to a story about a Bigfoot coming out of a UFO? I mean, God, I once went to a, a Pierre Burton speech, and I don't know if you know much about Pierre Burton, but he came from the Yukon, where he came from Dawson City. And his speech was about the Bigfoot and how Bigfoot actually came from the Yukon. And he, you know, wrote that article up like 50 times, but his speech was how I sold the Bigfoot 50 times. 
And I thought, now there's a smart guy because he's been able to stretch that story into a speech about how he how he wrote the story. So, well, um, Bigfoot aside, yeah. Bigfoot aside, you you made your way. You, I you did. Made your way, you I made did. your way to television you know, after after a stint in radio, a great stint, more than a stint, like a career basically. And so, as I was charting your television career, the part I know and the part I learned, it occurred to me, you know, you pretty much been in every part of the value chain i'll just put a word around it of of television productions and at the absolute highest levels of the industry the only thing i didn't see and haven't been able to track about you is maybe that you haven't produced an nhl hockey game which i know is a really big claim to fame for the places that you've worked over your career although i was when i was at cbc calgary and I was the director of the supper hour show, the supper hour evening show in the early 80s, yeah, in the early 80s, uh, as only the CBC would do, they sold half of my contract to Hockey Night in Canada. And so I became the ISO director with the Calgary Flames. And John Shannon, who you may know or of course may not know, um, John was the main Hockey Night in Canada director. And John was a tough SOB. If he was on this conversation, he would nod and smile and say, yes, I was. And well, I still am. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to ring him up because I do know him and uh, I know he'll make for an entertaining <laughs> zinger he of a was. podcast. Yeah, I was just kind of like, you know, like a little munchkin working ISO with the Flames games. And Shannon was the big dog who would come in. And he was a yeller and a screamer. And I hate it. I mean, you know, I, I've had a lot of jobs that I've enjoyed and done well at. But there were one or two jobs that I hated and did badly at because they weren't just the fit for my personality. And being a truck or studio ISO director with a real director yelling at you was not for me. All and right. So, so we won't I, talk anymore about well, that. That's, Those are that's why I, I don't tell anybody fade. I, I don't okay. hockey. That's our little, but, but Rick Chisholm had to have known that. Oh yeah, Rick did. Yeah, Rick did. But Rick, <laughs> okay. was a, you know, Rick was a famous director as well. So uh, oh, very famous, very famous. Yeah. All right, so let's let's move on a little bit. So you, you made it to the Journal, and you weren't covering Bigfoot, and you weren't covering Flames game, and you and this is CBC. You know, at a time when, from what I understand, I was still rather young in those days. But right. from what I understand, you know, CBC was the outright news leader from a, a national perspective in Canada at that time. So, so you move, you move to the journal, instant credibility in your craft as a storyteller and a newsmaker. I know it took you all over the world. Um, but what was that like when, when you made that move and what, what did that, what did that mean as you kind of look back on it to maybe not what happened directly next, but you know, what you've done in the last 20, 25 years? Well, I was very fortunate to get the job at the Journal. Um, my job was uh, a field producer, a field director, based out of Calgary. And before I got the Journal job, I had worked in Toronto for Morningside with Peter Zosky and Don Heron. And, and I had uh, been seconded from Morningside to uh, cover the 1980 PQ election in Montreal that was kind of a pulling together of producers from Morningside as it happens in Sunday morning. 
And it was that group, and it was my boss, Mark Starwich, it was that group that produced the journal. So the journal was kind of like the entree of all these young punk, and I was like 26 or 27 at the time, all these super aggressive, young kind of hotshot producers from CBC Radio moving into TV. And we were a hungry bunch because when I was at CBC Radio working on Morningside, um, I moved from Calgary at my own cost down to Toronto, and I had a 13-week contract. That's the, that's the type of contracts that that cohort of radio producers had. We were all in there on short-term contracts, and you never really knew whether your contract was going to be renewed or not. And at Morningside, there was a group of 10 chase producers, and we would get together, and we'd have a story meeting. And the executive producer would be there, and Zoski or Don Heron or whoever the host at the time was would be there. And the executive producer would go around the table. What do you have? What do you have? What do you have? And you felt this incredible pressure to come up with something that was clever, you know, something that worked for the show. So, you know, we were all hungry and we we're all hardworking. And when the journal was looking to hire somebody in Calgary, I was fortunate to get the job because I was known by that community of radio producers. I knew Calgary. Um, prior to that, I had been a, a reporter at, at CBC Radio in the legislature in Alberta, in Edmonton. So I knew politics, you know, I knew Peter Lougheed and Grant Notley and, you know, the, the political environment there. So, you know, I was the right person to be hired for the job, but I didn't have much TV experience. You know, I had been beaten up by Shannon as a director, which I hated. And, you know, I uh, had done a few TV reporting pieces, but I, I didn't have the kind of the swaggering personality to be a, like a, a 1980s sort of TV guy. So the journal came along and it was a great job. And I, I tell people, Mark, that uh, it was my, you know, with all respect to the community of folks you and I work with at the Olympics, which was a great group of folks too. But the people at the journal were really exceptional. And, you know, rarely in your career do you get together with a group of folks who are all really good at their jobs, you know, and we work with Mary Lou Finley and Barbara Fromm and Anne Medina and Peter Kent and Arthur Kent and Linda McIntyre and, you know, all these world-class journalists. And uh, we had a big budget and I was based in Calgary and I had one of those magic CBC credit cards and I'd get a phone call that would say, Don, we need you to go to Mexico City and meet Peter and meet the crew. And so I'd go out to the airport and I'd put my credit card down and I'd fly away. I was single at the time. And uh, so, yeah, it was a great job. You know, I did it for uh, the journal lasted nine and a half years. I was there for eight years before I went into management and took a senior management job at CBC. And I was everywhere from, you know, uh, I was in, in Sarajevo and, and Bosnia during the war, El Salvador, Nicaragua, um, Honduras, you know, you name it. And the journal at the time, the journal and the national had uh, their ratings were around two million, two and a half million viewers a night. So now, you know, the national say this respectfully to my friends who work there, the National gets four to 500,000 viewers if they're lucky. So the Journal National 
combination from 10 to 11 every night was must watch viewing for Canada. Uh, and the national was 22 minutes. And then the journal came on for another 38 minutes, which gave us enough airtime. We could lead the show with a, a Barbara from interview with Margaret Thatcher or Brian Mulroney or Pierre Trudeau or, you know, Henry Kissinger world-class names that Barbara would do a, a 10 or 12 minute deep dive interview with, followed by a 20 minute documentary somewhere. So for a young guy like me, working on the journal was was sort of like graduate school or boot camp. You know, it's like TV boot camp. And every year, I was based in Calgary, so I would do t- between 10 and 12 uh, 20 minute docs. And the camera and sound guys were world-class. The reporters were fantastic. And those people helped carry people like me who didn't have the, the, the TV experience. You know, we, we learned pretty quickly. You know, within a year, we were all really, really good at our jobs. But uh, I look back over the arc of my career and I just kind of count my blessings that uh, I was able to get that job. And that job then, you know, worked as a springboard into, you know, half a dozen other really interesting jobs after that. No, it's really amazing to hear the opportunity that you had. As you were talking about your experience, I was thinking back, and I'm glad you made the connection. You know, I was that young guy on the scene when we did that Olympic project. I was new, and it was amazing to work with that, you know, that all-star team of people who just knew what they needed to do, even though we didn't exactly know how we were going to do it all. So I want to I want to move from that amazing experience on the journal, which sounds like it really defined a lot of how you look at storytelling and how to craft a story, how to get a story covered, because it seems like quite a competitive environment that you had at that time. But then all of a sudden you're you're in Toronto again a few years later. You're basically launching the CNN of Canada. But you're doing it in a place, and with all the admiration and respect that I have, and I know you have for the CBC, you know, you're doing it in a, in, a, in a Canadian public institution. And let's face it, there's some pretty big egos that you have to keep in check when, when you're launching you know, News World. So tell me about a few things. Why'd you take on the role? Because it sounded like the journal was a pretty good gig. You know, when you got into the News World opportunity, did you even know what the exit strategy was, how you were going to get out of that? What, what, is, what did the other side of that look like? And I guess even, you know, what you kind of learned along the way that through that project, that again, trying to connect it to the future, you know, that prepared you for challenges that came later it on. It did, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. Um, when News World was launched, what I learned was how to make TV with no money. With the journal, it was how to make great TV with money. News World came along and there were three executive producers Myself, uh, Sandy McKean, who's based in Halifax, and John McQuaker, who sort of built up the Calgary and the regional unit. And we reported to Joan Donaldson, who was the, you know, the, the driving force behind this vision. And Joan went around the country and met all the cable owners, because at that time, you know, it was a jigsaw puzzle of cable companies all over Canada. And Joan had to go and convince these, you know, regional entrepreneurs to carry the CBC and a 24-hour, 24-7 CBC. And there wasn't a lot of love at the grassroots of the regional entrepreneurs for the CBC. So Joan was able to do that, but we had a minuscule budget. 
And the way News World was financed was the, the because we had no revenue flow, because there were no cable subscribers for News World at the time. There's no pass through dollars. So we had to borrow, it was a loan, and the CRTC dictated this that it had to be a loan at banking commercial rates borrowed from the main channel to get News World up and running. You know, we, we had hundreds of applications. You know, people, you know, one, one thing about this business is that people are always looking down the road. They're always looking at the future and they're trying to see where it's going. And the smart folks at the CBC, all the young producers and all the young reporters could see the emergence of cable. And let's not forget, News World started in, I think, 89, the fall of 89. I think it started. So, you know, that was before history, before comedy, before space, before, you know... Yeah, you basically had, you know, you had, I think, CNN, perhaps. You had TSN. You had much music. Yeah, ESPN. And, you know, it was just starting. So we had all these super smart young folks who could see the future. And that was the arrival of cable and what that would do as a disruptive uh, variable in the television universe. So when we, you know, tried to get News World up and running, um, it, it, was, it was hard. You know, we had to do a lot of shows with no sets. So we used the newsroom and we'd, you know, cast an anchor with their tie askew and their their sleeves rolled up and they'd go, hey, you know, here we are live in the newsroom and I, we just want to put you at the heart of the action. The truth was we didn't have any money to build a set. So we had to do it from the newsroom. And at that time, you know, we were still trying to bring the stories of uh, the world to Canadians. And it was, you know, it's very hard when you have no money to bring in a feed from South Africa. You know, Nelson Mandela had been released and, the, you know, everything in South Africa was changing and the ANC was kind of in chaos. And we wanted to find a way to cover that. So what we quickly learned was to use local experts, local profs. And the politicians started to figure out that if you're a backbencher in Sault Ste. Marie, the only way you're going to get any national profile is to get onto News World because the national news, whether it's uh, CTV or CBC, is probably rarely going to put you on. And if they are, it's probably not going to be for a good thing. But if you want to get on and talk about how you're bringing government dollars into your community and, you know, and how you're trying to build representative democracy in the country, News World was your platform because we had to fill a lot of airtime. And we didn't have the money to do the big stories the way the main channel did. So my one takeaway from that, Mark, was how to make TV on no money, which, of course, helped me when I went into independent production, because then we really had no money because it was our own money that we had to spend. So, you know, I was I was really blessed in that dichotomy between working at the journal and being a, a regional producer and having network experience and then working at News World. So from the journal to News World was like the two sides of the financial coin. And when you look at kind of your time as it wrapped up at News World, was it just, was it just the project that you signed up for was kind of complete? 
or you can pass the baby on to someone else to watch it grow? Yeah, no, I was there for two years. And then, um, you know, those jobs, they, they become repetitive. You know, I'm, I'm sure you, you and, you know, your listeners know in their professional lives, you know, once you create something new and it's up and running, then it just becomes a job. You know, you have to deal with a bunch of crap because things go wrong. And so the upside of being creative and making something from nothing quickly diminishes to damage control. And you want to keep your little baby alive, but that means a lot of saying no to people because you don't have any money to say yes. And it's, you know, it's easy to say yes if you have money, but it's, it's hard to say no. And so what I found was that at News World, and as I got sort of deeper into that community, we were saying no, no, no all the time, just because we couldn't afford it. And that becomes grinding and tiring and disheartening after a while. And also, to be really honest, you know, the independent world by this point, the, the CMF, which at the time was called the CTF, the Canadian Television Fund, had launched. And, uh, you know, I had a young family, you know, my, my wife, Marnie and I we had three kids at home. And there was all the stresses of that. And, you know, putting in the 12 hour days and the six hour weeks. And, you know, I, I, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day. I cannot remember the number of Christmas days that I went into work. It would be dozens of Christmas no, days. Listen, when you're when you're in the news cycle, um, the holidays yeah. are, are a luxury. Well, let's. You know, some of the things that you were just discussing there, when you're th- talking about specialty television, if you will, I mean, I from my you know from my tours of duty in the, the TV broadcast world, I mean, that was really digital was looked upon as. You know, we're going to test. It's not that serious. The audience, you know, we can roll up our sleeves, have our no ties, by the way, no, no ties in digital. It's amazing the parallels of the different kind of cohorts and generations of folks like us and what we had to deal with to gain credibility. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a bit about the, the business in, in a few minutes yeah. and where it's at kind of today. But what I, where I wanted to go now, because you just talked about, you know, saying no and being scrappy and not having the money to do things the way that you would have liked to do them. And we're going to skip some time in your timeline here. We're going to play a little Pulp Fiction. Um, We'll fast forward to the Canada's Olympic Broadcast Media Consortium, which was flush with cash. And and I I vaguely know your mandate and what you were supposed to do there. But um, from where I was sitting, I mean, you were an absolute rock star. Like you were doing the coolest thing that had ever been done in Olympic coverage because your job was to make make the Olympic broadcast relevant starting, you know, a year plus out so that by the time Vancouver arrived, um, it would be an unprecedented games from at all levels of broadcast production, let alone the sport itself. And it absolutely was that. But when you think back to, and I think it was Rick, but you'll clarify, like when you think back to, you know, kind of why you were hired and what were you, you were really asked to deliver um, no, tell, tell us about that. Cause you were in independent production at that point. So we got you out of that to join us yeah. on this, you know, inspirational journey that was, you know, by Canadians for Canadians. But what was it like being you? 
Yeah, well, I think the reason I was hired and, you know, again, I was very fortunate. It was a really competitive job. And uh, I'll, I'll just pull the curtain back a little bit and, and tell you the hiring process. So uh, there were a couple hundred applications. So my job was executive producer of features uh, and documentaries for the consortium. And there were a couple hundred applications. And it got down to, and I'm sure the applications were all strong. So it got down to 30. And I was in Winnipeg at the time, actually, uh, running my production company out of Winnipeg. And I was in Winnipeg for tax credit and financing reasons. So I got, uh, I got called to come down to Toronto. So I came down and I wrote up, you know, again, you got to show some initiative and you got to, you know, look to the future. So I did my due diligence and I worked the phones before I came down. And, you know, I talked to people I knew in the industry seeing. So like, what, what do you think these folks want? And what, what are they looking for? And, and how can I best present myself? So I wrote up a little kind of mission statement. So I came down and so I went in to the, the board meeting and there was a lawn, Markovich was there and Keith Pelly showed up and, you know, a Ricky was there and this sort of who's who, this A-list of sports broadcasters were there. And so I, so they kind of, you know, it's the usual thing. So, you know, how are you doing and tell me your story and stuff like that. So then it came down to like, so what is it that you want to do with this job? And you know, when you go through these job interviews, there's usually one or two crucial questions. And if, you, if you're smart and you know how to read the room, you can feel the vibes. And that's when it's you know the Joe Carter home run, right? So you've got to hit that walk-off home run to win the World Series, right? So you just know it's three and two, and you fouled a bunch off and you stayed alive, but you're just hoping that the fastball that you've been waiting for comes in, right? And so then somebody said to me, so wait, what do you want to do with this job? And I thought to myself, this is the question. And fortunately, it was the one that I had prepared for. And so I said, you know what, guys, whether you hire me or not, um, here, here's what I want to do with the job. I want to make heroes out of Canada's Olympians. Like one sentence, like a t-shirt, right? A one sentence t-shirt pitch. I want to create heroes out of Canada's Olympians. And then it just hung in the room. I didn't say anything else. And I, you know, was kind of making eye contact. I was looking around and then Keith said, well, I, that's what I want to do too. So how do you want to do that? And then that becomes the easy part, right? So then, well, I want to do this and I want to do that. And I want to do that. But that's kind of why I got that job, Mark. And that was to really boil it down to the heart. The focus of the remit was to create heroes. And you did that. And Alon and the digital team did that. And Gord certainly did that, you know, with, with all of the, his sets and just the way they put together the coverage of Vancouver. But, you know, we did about 400 athlete profiles. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of profiles. We did, um, let me see if I can remember. We did 15 one-hour documentaries. That's a lot. 400 three to four minute pieces and as well as you know we created a ton of content for the digital platforms 
And we had all the channels that we had to work with, right? We, we had TSN and Sportsnet. We had RDS. We had APTN doing stories in Dene and Inuktitut and uh, in Cree. You know, I, I had to go, I went to Winnipeg and I had to have a meeting with a bunch of elders where we were, we were saying, well, if we do a Cree play-by-play of the hockey games, so how do we say, you know, punch in the face in Cree or high sticking in Cree? You know, like all of this stuff was incredibly interesting and people had never really asked these questions before. So my, you know, my job was to, uh, and, and just to kind of circle back to, to why I got the job, I thought I got the job because uh, that was the right answer, you know, for the, that got me, that just got me from the 30 down to the final three. And there was, you know, there was myself and two other candidates. I don't know who they were, but I'm sure they were ex- exceptional. And I came back to Toronto. I was taken out for dinner. So Rick and Keith and uh, a guy from Rogers and kind of like the A-list of media managers took us out for dinner. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, one guy Wednesday, one guy Thursday. We went to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. So, you know, I knew that this was like the big meeting. So I thought to myself, okay, well, how, how do I position myself so that these guys have faith in me? Well, I've got to have at least one beer Better not have two or three because then, you know, we'll be like into the Jamesons. So let's just have like one beer and one glass of wine. Let's not order the big steak. Let's order the small steak so that I'm not stuffing my face, (laughs) you know, with free, with a free $60 steak. So we did that and it was, you know, it was the Friday night. So I was the last guy and it's always best to be the last guy. So we, you know, we had a nice dinner and it was all very, very, uh, professional, very cordial. Then the guy from Rogers turned to me just as we were having coffee and he said, Don, Don, this has been great, but I want to have, I just want to ask you one more thing. And again, I knew this was the question, right? And he said to me, what makes you tick? What makes you tick? And to be honest, Mark, you cannot prepare for that question. Right, that was a great question. And I've actually filed it away because I ask people now when I interview people, I say, so listen, just want to get the book. What makes you take? And you, that you, you have to be honest. And I thought to myself, I thought, well, fuck it, I might as well, you know, be as honest as possible because that's what he wants. And so I said, uh, I'll, I'll be really frank. Um, uh, what makes me tick is not being my dad. I don't want to be an old guy looking myself in the mirror and saying, I wished I'd done this. I wished I'd done that. I wanted to be an old guy looking myself in the mirror saying, you know what? I had the courage to follow my ambitions and chase that brass ring. And honestly, Mark, I could see in his eyes that he liked that. And it wasn't strategic and, you know, I wasn't being, you know, manipulative. That was honestly what I thought. Wow. Well, that's amazing that you, at that time. At that time. That 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 came to you in a moment? Did you, that just clicked and you're like, that's what drives me. And it's absolutely true. And it was, that's why it was such a great question because it gets to the, really the heart of who you are and why you are here applying for this job. 
And so Keith had liked my earlier answer about creating heroes out of Canadian athletes. And then the guy from Rogers, he was, uh, I can't remember his name. He was, you know, we're, we're going to put a name on him because he, he, he deserves it. I think it's Doug Beforth. Yeah, right. Right. It would be Doug. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I could tell that Doug liked that answer because don't forget the Olympics was the consortium. It was a never before coming together of these two giant companies at the yeah. time for Vancouver was CTV. And how the world has changed where basically it's just Rogers you know, Media and Bell Media you know. now. CBC, unfortunately, has had to, at least for sports, uh, yeah. step into the And I think, you know, road. I think, you know, if you have some protégés or some students looking for an MBA thesis topic, you should have somebody write on the relationship between Bell and Rogers uh, during the London Olympics, because it was Bell when London came along. And just how that played itself out. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I, I uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking with some other folks more on the business side of our little venture yeah. uh, to get some of those some of those stories out. I, I haven't approached Keith yet, but uh, he's certainly yeah. on my list. We're going to cut off the conversation with Don right here. We talked about a lot more with Don, the Canadian Media Fund, VR. So we're going to release a part two soon. We hope you enjoy that as well. The Backstage Project Podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go. They help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to readysetgo.design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com.